Alrighty folks, and welcome to the Chronicle Podcast Channel. Episode 9, The Western Zhou Dynasty. So for all purposes here, I will discuss the Western Zhou Dynasty, just because it is easier to break down what happens after the Western Zhou falls. So today's episode, we will talk about the Western Zhou Dynasty alone. So the Zhou Dynasty, as we know, was established in 1046 BC, and the dynasty as a whole lasted until 256 BC. But the period we will be looking at today lasts from 1046 BC until 772 BC, so around 500 years before the Zhou's official end. The Zhou Dynasty was China's uh, longest-lasting dynasty officially. It lasted over 700 years. But the kings we will talk about in the next episode were nothing more than puppets on strings of their larger states. The dynasty was established by King Wu of the Zhou. And like the start of every dynasty, he was a wise ruler, he was a kind ruler, and he was a good ruler. And of course, his son and his sons after him. And I bet at the time, he never knew that he would lay the foundations for China's longest lasting dynasty. And yet, he did it. After the overthrow of the Shang, the Zhou moved the capital away from Anyan, the last Shang capital, by the way, and moved to their ancestral homelands, which they called Chang'an. Now, moving forward, you will hear a lot about this city. It is the capital of modern-day Shaanxi province, and because of the history behind the city, it attracts millions of tourists every single year. And not to mention, of course, the amazing street food that is there as well. The Zhou's building of the capital set the standard for future Chinese capital cities. Now, some dynasties just plunk themselves right into Chang'an, or they built whole new capitals. But they were all based off the initial designs of the Zhou dynasty. What made this the way to go for future dynasties? The reason why is because the capital represented a goodly world order, and it was in display at the present time of each dynasty. As well as this, The shapes of the cities are always square or rectangular shapes on a north-south axis. The residential areas for the ruler and his family were always located in the north and the commoners were in the south. On a map, north is always above south. So it has meaningful significance. The ruling family is above everyone else and therefore they are the closest ones to heaven. So that is why... The emperors and the kings of the Zhou were at the north of each city and then everyone else was at the south. The capital also had a wall surrounding it with four gates, east, south, west and north. Or if you want to translate it into Chinese, Dongnan Xibei. This was a good form of defence, but it also played a ritualistic role as well. For example, Religious buildings and altars were built at the gates, and the kings of the Zhou would come out from time to time to perform sacrifices to the ancestors 
and ensure better harvests and things like that. The Zhou also introduced the worship of heaven to China. Now don't get me wrong, they still worship their ancestors and even in China today, you can see ancestral worship playing a huge role in society. But because heaven was the legitimizer of the Zhou rule, they needed to incorporate this into state politics as well, and as well as religion. A way to look at this is that the Zhou considered heaven to be basically the sky, and that is where you will hear the term Tianxia. Tian literally means sky or heaven. Xia means under, so basically everything under heaven. Um, as well as that, the Zhou controlled all who are under heaven, in a way. That is the way that they seen it, anyway. The realm of the dynasty was all under heaven. The idea of the realm being all under heaven led later Chinese civil wars to aim for reunification rather than domination. And no, the Xia dynasty doesn't translate to the under dynasty. Xia is also a family name. So, the Western Zhou, as well as this, and this is kind of a fun fact, brought in metal coins to the economy of the realm that we can now call China, at its early stages. The Shang dealt with cowrie shells as currency, or bargained and bartered with one another in their local economies. The Zhou had now issued a centralised currency, which actually took the shape of spades, which look awesome. I would definitely recommend checking them out on my Instagram or Facebook page when you get a chance. Now the thing is, the Western Joe is known as the time when everything was hunky-dory. It was 200 years of peace and stability. Well, inside the kingdom. It was a time of great expansion. It was a time of great philosophy. And artisans had managed to forge iron, a metal even stronger than bronze. And it was a time of huge population growth and a baby boom. But that is where the good times end. So we've covered the architecture of the capital, or the newly established capital, should I say. The religion, the time, as in like how long the dynasty lasted, and the effects of the dynasty. But what about the military? The Zhou dynasty were actually really successful in expanding their territory. Much more successful than the Shang anyway. Especially when it came to conquests in the south and the southeast. The Zhou's success in war was almost too good. Because this essentially is what led to the collapse of the dynasty. Basically, it buckled under its own weight. Now the Zhou kings could not, just simply could not, have exercised absolute power when the empire was so big. So they employed people to positions of power, and they, in turn, were to pay fealty to the king. Kind of try and think of this as the medieval European feudal system. It's basically that. This was called the Fengjian, and at the top you would have the kings, in the middle the lords or the nobles, and at the bottom you have peasants, and merchants, and artisans, things like that. Now at the beginning, the bonds between the Zhou kings and their vassal lords was very strong. But they made one fatal error. 
the position of lords, like kings, was hereditary. That meant that when someone was put in to govern a particular area, his son would take over, and then his son took over, and then his son took over. So what would happen is that those once strong and tight bonds would start to become loose and weak as time progressed. The problem is that the first man to be appointed by the king would also have been a personal friend of the king, and therefore he would be a loyal servant to the king. But what happens generations later? The vassal has never met the king, and he starts to ask questions. Why should I bother paying tributaries to this guy whom I have never met? It actually kind of got pretty weird, because lords who were employed by the dynasty could run their own campaigns, they could run their own militias, they had their own tax laws. It was basically an independent state, under the umbrella of the Joe. What was also pretty weird was that the vassals could run military campaigns under the name of the Joe state. Now the thing is, they were supposed to ask permission from kings in order to run a campaign. And usually, the answer was always yes. But as time progressed, people didn't even bother asking the Joe kings for permission. They just did it anyway. And then they would just make the excuse, oh, well, you know, I did it for you. I did it for the greatness of this uh, dynasty. But they just, everyone around the table knew that they were doing it for more power. And then they could later challenge the Joe for authority. And then, as time progressed even further, these states started to turn on each other. But we'll get into that later on. That is more the Eastern Joe. The last emperor of the Western Zhou is called Yo Wang, or Zhou Yo Wang, who ascended the throne in 781 BC. And to be honest, all I hear about is one story when it comes to this guy. And the story is called Tricking the Marquess with Beacon Fires. So, Yo Wang was a bit of a simpleton by all accounts. His favourite concubine would never smile and it seemed like she was miserable at his side. All he wanted was to see her smiling again. Serious Heath Ledger Joker vibes right now. But unlike the Joker, he doesn't carve a smile onto his face to make her happy. Instead, the king tried to take her for a walk along the palace grounds. And there, he's seen one of the signal fires being lit. So I need to bed pedal back here. And the signal fires are basically beacons that the Joe could light on fire and then people from far away could see it. It was used in case of emergencies, of an impending attack, things like that. So, the entire army, after seeing the signal fire being lit, or the beacon fire, all came rushing to aid the Emperor. But it turned out it was a false alarm. So whilst everyone was running around daft, trying to figure out what happened, they could hear someone laugh. And, you guessed it, it was the Emperor's concubine. Now, if you can read human behaviour well, and spoil little brats who inherited their throne rather than won it, you know what's going to happen next. The king noticed that he could hear his concubine laugh. Finally, something makes her laugh. So... He lit the beacon fires, 
just to hear her laugh again and again. And as you could imagine, the surrounding soldiers and the surrounding lords and nobles got fed up with this. A few of the Joe vassals then conspired with tribes outside the control of the Joe state and decided to sack Chang'an. The armies came, the beacon fires were lit, and would you look at that, no army was around to save the day. This is due partly to soldiers thinking it was another prank, and partly to the fact that some of the soldiers were on the invading side. King Yo was tracked down and killed. He died in the year 771 BC and had been the ruler of the fragmenting state for just 10 years. The story draws on obvious comparisons to Western stories. You know, the boy who cried wolf. And yeah, the moral of the story is pretty much the same too. But the problem is, Chinese scholars later on would criticise the concubine and blame her for the fall of the dynasty. But I mean, yeah, I mean, it's partly her fault, but it's also the king's fault. He was the one who gave the orders, you know. And plus, he had other concubines, so... I think it's very unfair to judge just the concubine. But she gets blamed for it anyway. So, the fall of Chang'an then led to what was left of the Zhou royal family, abandoning the old capital and moving their capital to Luoyang. And that is where historians draw the driving line between the Western Zhou and the Eastern Zhou. It does suit because the capital was literally moved from west to east in 771 BC. The vassals of the state began to ignore and even conspire against the Zhou, and this is when you see a transition of peace to absolute chaos during the rest of the dynasty's reign. You also see the kings having authority during the western period, and then a transition to the eastern period where they have no authority whatsoever. Next week, we will take a look at the Eastern Zhou period, or what became known as the Spring and Autumn period. This period, in all honesty, is a can of worms. So what I will do is talk about the period itself, the politics and certain battles, etc. And then what I will do is I will look into the philosophies that came around and were born during this time. For example, Confucianism, Taoism, Legalism, Mohism, and of course, the creation of the art of war. Now, what I'm thinking is, I will release an episode for each philosophy. So, for example, Confucianism definitely deserves an episode on its own. Taoism also deserves an episode on its own. Legalism deserves an episode on its own. Mohism, as well as the art of war. So that is my plan for the next, I don't know, 10 weeks? So we'll be stuck in this one period, talking about the significance of all these different philosophies and how they played out in China in later generations. So I hope you have enjoyed this episode, and I hope to see you again next time on the Chronicler Podcast channel. Thanks for listening.